This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. First thing in the morning, security was heavy and a large crowd of the curious gathered outside the courthouse to watch as Patriarcha arrived. It was 1981, and the Rhode Island State Police had built a new case against the 73-year-old mob boss, Raymond Patriarca. He looked terrible. Eyes closed, oxygen tubes in his nose, and intravenous medication being poured into him as he was carried up the steps of the building and into court, surrounded by... In the courtroom, Patriarca lay on a stretcher with a towel wrapped around his head. He was accused of ordering the hits on two wise guys more than 15 years earlier. One of them was shot in the head. The other was beaten to death. His bones were found in a shallow grave. His reputation in this community is alarming. His criminal record reaches back to 1926 and involves multiple convictions for murder on both the state and federal levels. Patriarca's lawyer, Jack Cicilline, told the judge that his client had a weak heart and was too sick to stand trial. If he's put through a number of these other uh, proceedings that are scheduled and his condition hasn't changed, there's a great likelihood that he will suffer the sudden death syndrome that the doctors have talked about. But the prosecution was skeptical. He seems to get ill every time there's an indictment about to issue against him, so I'm not I don't have any real medical analysis as to whether or not he uh, is capable of standing trial. But there was someone in the courtroom that day who could speak to Patriarca's condition. She's there in the news footage, a young doctor sitting by the old man's side, whispering in his ear. It was Patriarca's cardiologist, Dr. Barbara Roberts. I had him hooked up to a cardiac monitor, and during the preliminary testimony, I could see changes in his EKG, that his heart wasn't getting enough blood supply. And I said, Raymond, are you having angina? And he said, yes. So I said, Jack, I got to get him to a hospital. Patriarcha was then taken back to Miriam Hospital. Now that the arraignment is over, Patriarcha is no longer under arrest and he can go home. Some say to stage a miraculous recovery. Others say to die. Prosecutors had spent decades trying to bring the aging mob boss to justice. But was Patriarcha really knocking on death's door? Or was he faking his illness to dodge a murder charge? Today's episode, we talk to the one person who knows for sure, Dr. Barbara Roberts. As a result of taking care of Raymond, I wound up being the cardiologist to many of what I like to call the AOCFs, alleged organized crime figures. <laughs> and not to my face, but behind my back, they used to refer to me as the Dr. Broad. The Dr. Broad. Life, death, and a mafia love story. I'm Zach Stewart-Pontier. And I'm Mark Smerlin. Welcome to Crime Town. 
Raymond would sit here in like a lawn chair and he just looked like an old man with a cigar and everyone knew he was watching everything. A couple times I stopped and I went in the coinomatic. He gave me a hug. I can't explain how that felt. I loved him. I wish he was my father, you know? And Raymond says, I want them son of a bitches killed. Mafia in Malay. Raymond is a good man. He never hurt. He took care of more people than he hurt. It's hard to overstate how improbable it was that Barbara Roberts wound up the doctor for a mob boss. My parents were members of what was called the Catholic Workers Movement, and they and friends of theirs bought 52 acres of land, and they were really into having very large families and being very, very Catholic and being poor. And we were. All those things. All those things. So Barbara got out. She won a scholarship to a boarding school. And it was there that she decided to become a doctor. In medical school, she got married and had a child. And I remember when I had my daughter, I was a sophomore in medical school. I took a week out of class and went back to school. And one of the professors took me aside and he said, I just want you to know that I don't think you have any business being in medical school. You have a young child. Your place is at home with your daughter. Barbara says her husband felt the same way. The marriage didn't work out. She finished medical school and struck out on her own, finding a sense of purpose in political causes. See this picture of me up here? That's me speaking at the last mass anti-war demonstration on the grounds of the Washington Monument oh, in 1973. I was very active in the women's movement, the anti-war movement. You were a rebel. I was a rebel from, yeah, from yeah. the word go. Dr. Roberts eventually moved to Rhode Island, becoming the first female cardiologist in the state. And when she needed a lawyer, a friend recommended Jack, as in Jack Cicilline, Raymond Patriarca's lawyer. One night, she was meeting with Jack in his office on Federal Hill, when one of Patriarca's men burst through the door. Maddie Guglielmetti came running into the office, all, you know, in a frenzy, saying the state police just arrested Raymond and took him to the Situate Police Barracks. And they were very concerned about his health. Dr. Roberts stood by as the lawyer and the mobster tried to figure out what to do next. Then they turned to her. So they said, oh, we're trying to get in touch with his cardiologist and we can't reach him. So they were sort of looking at me very expectantly. And I said, well... If you want, I'll go up to the state police barracks and check him. I felt like I was about to go on stage in some long-running Broadway show with no idea what my lines were. So all of a sudden, Jack Cicilline comes in along with uh, Dr. Barbara Roberts. This is Detective Vinnie Vespia. He arrested Raymond Patriarca for the murder of those two wise guys you heard about at the top of the show. And he was there at the state police barracks when the mob lawyer and the doctor broad showed up. Cicilline says, uh, 
I want, I want to see my client. Barbara Roberts says, I want to see my patient. And when I first walked in the room, I took one look at him and I thought, oh my God, he's tiny. But I said, Mr. Patriarca, I'm Dr. Barbara Roberts. Can I take a listen to you? He said, yes. So I listened to his lungs, I listened to his heart, and I checked his pulse. And his pulse was extremely erratic. He was sweaty, he was bluish gray. He was clearly in some discomfort. And I thought, holy shit, he looks like he's gonna have a cardiac arrest any minute and I'll never be able to resuscitate him here. I said, this man needs to be hospitalized. The cops wanted to keep Patriarcha locked up, but they had no choice but to follow the doctor's orders. Again, Detective Vespia. After Raymond was escorted away, I said, it's all over. It's all over. You'll never see this man in court. No, you never see him go to trial. But Raymond and I got in the back of a state police cruiser with a rifle-toting guard next to us, and we drove off through the night from Situate to the Miriam Hospital. <laughs> the resident, when he realized who he was taking care of, looked like a deer in the headlights. He was quite a bit frightened. Um, but we got Raymond stabilized, and I went home. So that's how it began. Dr. Roberts took up a new cause. She became Raymond Patriarca's full-time cardiologist. Ordinarily, when I discharge someone from the hospital, I schedule an office appointment within a week or two. I thought to myself, they're going to say, well, if he's well enough to travel to her office, he's well enough to travel to court. So I told him, I'm going to come and make house calls. He lived in a very modest ranch house in... Johnston, with his second wife, Rita O'Toole Patriarca. And Rita would make lunch for us. And sometimes I would bring Megan, my youngest, and she called him Uncle Raymond. But being a mob boss's doctor attracted a lot of unwanted attention from the press and from others. I mean, I had the FBI come to my office. And I got very angry. I said, look, you guys, you know that I'm totally opposed to violence. You have a file on me from when I was active in the anti-war movement. I would never, ever wish violence on anybody. Did you ever think about whether or not he had done the thing that he was being charged with while you were keeping him out of jail? I really didn't care. I always wanted to stand up for the underdog. And in this situation, Raymond was the underdog. He had the whole might of the government against him, wanting to take this frail old guy with one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel and stick him in prison. I mean, I, I saw a very different side of him. Uh, I saw a very sick man who um, felt persecuted um, with, you know... Uh, with some reason, uh, I'm not saying that he was, you know, an angel, but it wasn't my job to decide his guilt or innocence. You understand, though, that to some people, it seemed like he was just trying to avoid prosecution. He was trying to avoid prosecution. I think he knew in his heart that if he went on trial, it would kill him. Right. And I, I firmly believe that. Yeah. Because he, he, he was very emotional about it. And he felt very bad that... I was put through a lot of grief because I was standing up for him. He said to me at one point, I 
I couldn't love you more if you were my own daughter. Barbara Roberts, the mob doctor, was now also a mob daughter. And soon, she would become something else, a mob mistress. That's coming up after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. Dr. Roberts's friendship with Raymond Patriarca all started when she met her lawyer, Jack Cicilline. And later, Jack introduced her to someone new. By this time, Jack and I had become very close friends. I met him at his office and we went down the street to a restaurant on De Pasquale Square called The Forum. So we walked into The Forum and the man I presumed was the manager came over and said, Jack, hi, welcome to The Forum. And Jack said, hi, Louis. He said, uh, Louis, I'd like you to meet my friend, Dr. Barbara Roberts. Barbara, this is Louis Minocchio. And alarm bells went off in my head <laughs> instantly because I, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if this is the Louis Minocchio who just you know, recently returned to Rhode Island after being on the lam for 10 years. Back in the 1960s, Luigi Louis Minocchio was accused of providing the weapons that killed a bookie and his bodyguard. You might remember them from our first episode as Rudy Marfio and Anthony Malay. After Menachia was indicted, he went on the lam. He used his time wisely. He took up skiing, read the classics, and taught himself French. Then his lawyer struck a deal. Now he was back in Providence, managing a restaurant while waiting trial. And he just had an aura about him. He just had a sort of very dignified, old-world charm. There was just an instant attraction that I felt, and I was pretty sure that he felt also. Hmm. How did you know? How did I know? Mainly because he kept coming over and talking to us. And (laughs) then he asked, after we finished eating, he asked Jack if he could give me a tour of the restaurant. So Jack said, sure, and Louis took me all over the restaurant. And he introduced me to all the staff, and he said, I hope you'll come back and eat here often. And when we left the restaurant, I turned to Jack and I said, is he the one that they call Baby Shanks? And Jack said, yes, he is, and I think you made a big impression. (laughs) Jack Cicilline, the Mafia Matchmaker. Dr. Roberts wanted to see Louis again. She needed an excuse. So she called some friends. Ginny and Patty and Rita. And I said, I met this really attractive older man last week. Um, He's a manager at the Forum up on Federal Hill. Would you guys come to lunch with me there this Friday? So the three of us went back to the Forum a week after I had met Louis. And we had lunch, and again, he was very attentive. And when it came time to pay the bill, he wouldn't let us pay. He said, no, this is my treat, uh, ladies, and um, please, you know, 
I hope you'll come back anytime. And I couldn't stop thinking about him. At some point during that period, we had started talking about sailing, and I had a sailboat in those days, a, a J-30 sailboat, and Lewis and I went sailing. Finally, I said to him, Lewis, what do you want of me? And he reared back as if he was insulted and said, what do I want from you? I don't want anything from you. I said, that's not what I asked. I asked, what do you want of me? And he started, he smiled and he said, oh yeah, I get the difference. Well, I'd like to get to know you better. I'd like to hold your hand and have you hold mine. And that night after dinner, um, Lewis and I became lovers. You know, he told me what he would and wouldn't do sexually. And if you watch The Sopranos, you know that, at least among older alleged organized crime figures, there's a certain sexual activity that they don't participate in. And I said to Lewis, well, I could care less. I'm more or less a meat and potatoes woman myself. <laughs> you had a friendship too, right? Yes. Um, he admired me for what I was doing to help Raymond. I mean, there were some... There were some people who were very cruel to my children. Like my oldest daughter, one of her classmates said, if my father could get that close to Raymond Patriarcher, he'd be killing him, not trying to keep him alive. And, you know, it's things that were very hurtful for my children. So I was very dependent on Lewis. He tried to help me in any way he could. He insisted that I bring the children up every night and eat at the forum. He said, you have enough on your plate without having to cook dinner. But at the same time, we had to keep our affair secret. And if it came out that I was not only now the mob doctor, but a mob mistress, it would make my testimony about Raymond's health almost worthless. Did you ever mention this relationship to Raymond? I think he probably knew about it, but we didn't discuss it. Right. Not until a couple of years later when Lewis was on trial. After years of jockeying by the lawyers, Lewis's deal with the prosecutors had fallen apart. He finally went on trial for his role in the murders of Marfio and Malay. And to bolster their case, prosecutors were trying to prove that he got his orders from Raymond Patriarca. One of the things that the prosecution decided to do was to depose Raymond Sr. about his relationship to Lewis. So one day during Lewis's trial, Jack told me that I had to be in court in case I had to testify about Raymond's medical condition. So I was pacing up and down outside the courtroom. And all of a sudden, Lewis turned a corner and he saw me. And it was like 
We looked at each other and he immediately turned around and, and went the other direction. But I think if anybody had seen the look we exchanged at that time, they would have known. Hmm. You were right in the middle. I was right in the middle. It was a, it was a freaking nightmare. The judge finally ruled that Raymond Sr. didn't have to come to court and give a deposition, but that they could take a deposition from him at his house. He was deposed at his house in Johnston, and all the press found out about it. Jim Terracani was a local TV reporter at the time. So we show up that day, and we're at the end of the driveway, and the house must have been, oh, I don't know, 100 feet from where we were, and all of a sudden, there was this loud, screaming voice, and it was Raymond. So we were in the den at their house in Johnston, and uh, Raymond was sworn in. He was dressed in his pajamas. His feet were up, you know, he was in a recliner with his feet on an ottoman. Jack allowed Raymond to answer to his name, but when the uh, prosecutor began to question him about his relationship with others, including Lewis, Raymond didn't say anything. And I was looking at him, and he wasn't saying anything, but he was becoming more and more agitated. You could tell just by looking at him. And suddenly he just erupted in this rage. And everyone in the room jumped and he started screaming, you're trying to kill me. You won't be happy till I'm dead. You won't leave me alone until I'm dead. You want me in jail or dead and you won't stop until it happens. This is persecution. Spittle was flying out of his mouth and then he collapsed in tears and he could barely breathe. He was struggling to breathe, and the judge was visibly shaken by this point. Rita came into the room furious, screaming, are you happy now? Are you all happy now? Does this make you feel good doing this to a sick old man? I hooked him up to a cardiac monitor. It showed clear-cut signs that his heart was starved for oxygen. I gave him more nitro, but he was writhing with chest pain. And then finally, I just said, that's it. This deposition is over. I'm calling rescue, and I'm taking him to the hospital. Whatever he was asked, it didn't sit well with him. Outside, Jim Terracani, the reporter, watched as an ambulance pulled up and took Patriarca and Dr. Roberts away. She always showed up at the right time to get Raymond out of, out of a jam. Maybe. Or was Barbara just a pawn in Patriarca's endless game with law enforcement? Back in 1963, on an FBI wiretap, Patriarca advises an accused felon to, quote, fake a heart attack to get his trial postponed so he can avoid a punitive judge. Clearly, faking heart attacks was an old Patriarca ruse. And for the first time, Barbara saw it. It was all I could do not to smile because I realized that Raymond had outfoxed the prosecution. So, they were never able to connect Dr. Robert's lover with her patient. But a few weeks later, Barbara got a phone call from Lewis's brother. And the minute I answered the phone, I knew immediately that Lewis had been convicted, and I started screaming, no, 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 and I was hysterical. 
I mean, I was in agony, in agony. I had lost my lover. I had lost my best friend. I had lost my protector. In, in many ways, it was worse than if he had died, because if he had died, he wouldn't be suffering. But I knew how fastidious he was and how fastidious he was about his clothing and personal hygiene and food. And the thought of him confined to a cell, it, it was just a form of torture. Yeah. How long did he get? He was sentenced to two consecutive life terms plus 10 years. He would not be eligible for parole until he was 86. With Lewis in prison, Patriarcha was the only person who understood what Dr. Roberts was going through. They took comfort in each other and the knowledge that they were in it together. So I decided one Sunday that I wanted, I wanted us all to go to the Coast Guard house, and he didn't want to go. And I said, Raymond, I think one trip to a restaurant with your cardiologist and your wife and your daughter-in-law and my daughter, Megan, it's not going to be enough for them to say you're well enough to stand trial. So we drove down from Johnston, and Megan was about four years old at the time, and we had a lovely lunch at the Coast Guard house. And on the way back, Megan decides that we all have to sing Old MacDonald Had a Farm. Old MacDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O, and on his farm he had some. And every time it was Raymond's turn to come up with an animal, he was finding it harder and harder to think of new animals. Megan got impatient and said, come on, Uncle Raymond, it's your turn. Uncle Raymond, it's your turn. And I got such a kick out of the four-year-old bossing around the boss. He got a big kick out of it, too. I got a call from Jack that Raymond had been taken to the Rhode Island Hospital Emergency Room in cardiac arrest, so I went tearing over there. And when I got to the emergency room, the emergency room doctors had him hooked up to a cardiac monitor. So I said to the ER doc, get me a temporary pacemaker. He needs a temporary pacemaker. And they said, well, you can't do that. You don't have privileges here. I said, well, then get a cardiologist down here right away because this man is going to die without a pacemaker, but it, you know, it took them another five minutes or so to get a cardiologist down there, and they put a pacemaker in, but we couldn't get him back. You always feel sad when you lose a patient, no matter how old they are. And this was a patient that I had become very close to emotionally. But on the other hand, I knew that at least I wouldn't be in the spotlight so much anymore, which is what I wanted. It was a relief. It was a relief in some ways. Raymond L.S. Patriarca the man of contradictions who ran organized crime in New England for 40 years was laid to rest today. In 61, I was sick with a heart condition, and I've still got the heart condition. It's none but a lot of hookwick that you people have been giving me for a long time. The funeral of Patriarcha, termed a private event by his family, saw spectators starting to gather shortly after 8 o'clock this morning across from the Baraducci Funeral Home on Broadway in Providence's Federal Hill section. 
was a huge, huge crowd. There was a huge crowd of people. I mean, I'm talking about hundreds, hundreds of people. This is Albert Baraducci. He worked at his family's business, the Baraducci Funeral Home. And he remembers the people who came to pay their respects on July 14th, 1984. 98% of the people were the people who lived on Federal Hill. They lived in the, in the tenement houses, the multifamilies, on the side streets. They were the people who got the oil on a cold winter's night. They were the people that he bought toys for for Christmas. Their hearts were broken for a good man. He was a good man. He was a good man. There's two sides to every story. They'll vilify. He's been vilified. And, and, you know, maybe rightfully so. I don't know his business. I only know him as a man, as the person. For the first time in nearly 50 years, Federal Hill was no longer Patriarcha's domain. His death reverberated throughout New England. It triggered a struggle for control of the crime family that bore his name. And for people like Albert Baraducci, Providence would never be the same. He was the last connection to that era, that era. When Raymond died, it was the end. When I say the end, it was the end. And he was the last of the Dons. And now, all of Patriarcha's friends, the wise guys and bookies, the crooked cops and the dirty politicians. They no longer had their powerful patron to protect them. Next time on Crime Town, one of Patriarcha's old friends goes down hard the Chief Justice of the Rhode Island Supreme Court. I'm not wearing a robe, sir. I admit to being a criminal. Thank God for that. I am not wearing a robe. He is. So y'all wearing a mask. Crime Town is me, Mark Smerling, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. We were produced by Drew Nellis, Caitlin Roberts, Austin Mitchell, and Mike Plunkett. Our associate producer is Laura Sim. We're edited by Alex Bloomberg and Caitlin Kenny. Fact-checking by Mick Rouse. This episode of Crime Town was mixed, sound designed, and scored by Haley Shaw. Additional mixing by Matthew Ball, Martin Peralta, and Enoch Kim. Additional sound design by Robin Shore at Silver Sound. Casting by Shelley Shinoy. Featuring performances by Shelley Shinoy, Brian Silliman, and Tarcisio Longobardi. And introducing Piper Yang. Archival courtesy of Rhode Island's WPRI, Channel 12, and WJAR, Channel 10. Our title track is Run to Your Mama by Goat. Torna A. Sorrento is performed by Pandora Mandolin Trio from the soundtrack to the documentary Italian Americans and Federal Hill, produced by Jonathan D. Rabin. Original music by John Cusiak, Kenny Cusiak, John Ivins, Edwin, and Beanart. 
Our credit music last week should have been credited to the Tills. Sorry about that. Our ad music is by Matthew Bull. Our digital editor is Rob Zipko. Our design director is Ali Lariu. Alex Bloomberg is the podfather. He's a meat and potatoes kind of guy. This season of Crime Town is dedicated to the memory of Bill Malinowski. Thanks to the Providence Journal, Providence Public Library, Julia Haymans, Emily Wiedemann, Kate Wells, Lisa Newby, Tim White, Mary Murphy, and everyone who shared their stories with us. For a full list of credits and for bonus content from this episode, visit our website at crimetownshow.com. You can find us on Twitter at Crimetown and on Facebook and Instagram at Crimetown Show. And if you're enjoying Crimetown, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps others find out about the show. Thanks. Providence is a special place, and we're honored to tell a part of its story. Nothing. All I know is what I've ever read in the papers, and I'm be honest with you, you know, believe half of what you read. Because it's just like this fucking show. Half of it's truth, and half of it's fucking bullshit. Okay? And let me tell you what I'm telling you. I don't bullshit.